we have been summarizing our consideration of objections to the truthfulness and accuracy of the Bible in connection with the question, what do we know about the truthfulness of God from the Bible? We have seen that the Bible presents the nature of God free from inconsistencies when it is accepted in its simplified statements. Also, that if God be allowed to change his mind, as the Bible declares in simplicity that he does, other objections are eliminated. We've also seen that when physical characteristics are used in describing the nature of God, that we are to understand them in view of a common sense interpretation, and therefore no problems arise from this angle. We have seen that man's moral actions determine his destiny, and that there is not any compelling predestination presented in the Bible to limit man's free will in any sense. We have seen that all sin is reduced to a free choice of the pathway of selfishness, and is not some sort of fixity within us causing us to act in such a manner. Also, that the fact that God commands all men to repent is sufficient evidence that men are able to repent, or God certainly would not have so commanded them. In the seventh place we considered that since the Bible positively affirmed that salvation is not all of God, no one can point out any inconsistency from the assumption that salvation is all of God, and yet that all are not being saved when the Bible affirms it to be God's will that all should be saved. We have seen that there are three agencies and one instrument in the salvation of a soul. The Spirit of God enlightens every man and exerts moral persuasion toward the sinner's repentance. The servants of God are free agents in selecting men as special objects of prayer and seeking to enlighten them and urge them on to repentance. The sinner himself is a free moral agent and must repent of his own free will and thus respond to the persuasive forces exerted upon him. The Bible, the Word of God, is the great instrument in all moral forces toward the repentance and new birth of the sinner. When the sinner repents or throws down his weapons of sinful indulgence, he is led into a comprehension of the inner nature of Christ's sacrificial death for his very sins. Faith becomes spontaneous. He commits his all to the atoning work of Christ in a climax of faith, which results in two things. Negatively, he is cleansed in a most mysterious way by the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit and freely forgiven for all past sins by the abundant grace of God. Positively, the Holy Spirit manifests himself in wonderful fullness within the cleansed heart, imparting the life-giving energies of the divine nature. The repentant sinner is thus wonderfully transformed in his whole conscious life. One objective is before him, to please his Lord and Savior in all things, 
and do the will of God with radiance of heart. This is expressed in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Notice the emphasis on all things. Thus we see that the salvation presented in the Bible involves other agencies than the agency of God. It is no reflection, therefore, upon the sovereignty of God to affirm that God is limited in applying his wonderful salvation to the hearts of men. This ought to be obvious on every hand. God has made it so by virtue of his creation, and certainly could not in wisdom eliminate man's moral freedom by reducing him to a mere machine. This view of things not only relieves the Bible from all inconsistencies in this most vital matter, but becomes a living challenge to all who have been reconciled to God by the death of Christ to bristle with activity in spreading the glorious gospel. The Apostle Paul wrote, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. 2 Corinthians 5.11 In the eighth place, we have also discussed objections that have been raised in connection with the blessed atonement of Christ. Now we need to remind ourselves again that no one ever has been saved or ever will be saved by believing in some particular theory of the atonement. No theory of the work of Christ ever has saved anyone, nor ever will. The Church of Christ never should have theorized upon so solemn a subject and has gotten into many complicated theological problems because of these philosophical ventures. Repentant sinners are saved by a full committal of will or by faith in the fact that the Lord Jesus has died or sacrificed his holy and sinless life that they might be forgiven. Without shedding of blood is no remission, we are told in Hebrews 9.22. The sinner accepts this terrifying necessity with a broken and contrite heart, and through identification with Christ, who has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, we read in Hebrews 9.26, experiences in actuality the power of the cross. Unto us who are being saved, it is the power of God, wrote the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.18. Theories and mental deductions of what the atonement of Christ actually accomplished has wrought much confusion. Consider these three propositions, which simply cannot all be true. One of them must be modified to accord with the other two. God is a God of reason. The Bible is a reasonable book. Therefore, contradictory propositions simply cannot be true. If theories are in trouble, they must be modified or eliminated. The Word of God must stand in its final simple declaration. First, concerning the atonement, it has come to be believed by many in recent centuries, 
Notice this important uh, thought, that in the blessed atonement of Christ, the nature of an exact payment to the personal nature of God the Father was brought forth and perfectly satisfied his vindictive or retributive justice so that sinners are saved on a basis of exact equivalency. So much suffering for so much guilt. There is no relinquishing of the penalty of sin in salvation, it is said, but a justification on the basis of strict and absolute payment. Obviously, if this be so, the atonement of Christ secures or guarantees the salvation or removal of guilt, for certainly God will not extract a penalty twice. But secondly, the Bible everywhere implies by its universal appeal and specifically reveals in the strongest words that the blessed atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ was made for everyone in the same sense. Consider Isaiah 53, 6, for example, where we read that all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now certainly the last all is just as inclusive as the first all. And if all have departed into sin, then it must be interpreted that the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ was to be made for all men in the same sense. In 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verses 5 and 6, we have this distinguished assertion. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Here we notice the Lord Jesus in his atoning sacrifice became a ransom for all. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9, this most tender verse appears. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. Here we see that he humbled himself and tasted death in a mighty climax of voluntary acknowledging the presence of sin in his own heart as he bore the sins of the world for every man in the same sense. We turn to 1 John 2, 2, and we read, For he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now this is exactly what we would expect from a just God who has no favorites or who is no respecter of persons, as the Bible specifically declares. But our third proposition from the Bible and from compelling observation is this, that it is most evident that the atonement of Christ is not benefiting all men in securing their salvation, but that only a minority are being reconciled to God thereby. Here then is the inconsistency. The atonement discharging penalty by literal payment the atonement made for all men in the same sense, the penalty of sin 
failing to be discharged for the great majority. Theologians have sought to avoid this class of propositions in two ways. Some have frankly denied the universality of the atonement and have advocated a limited atonement for the elect or for those predestined to be saved, which brings in another great mystery into this discussion. Suffice it to say that although the Bible does say that Christ's atoning work becomes effective only in the salvation of those who repent of sin and exercise faith, it also specifically affirms, as we have read, that the Lord Jesus Christ gave his life in the same sense for all men, using the strongest words. This method of escape, then, is untenable. Others in the history of the church have turned to universalism. Putting the two propositions together, they have inferred that all men will eventually be saved. It is this order of propositions, the atonement, a literal discharge of guilt, the atonement being made for all without discrimination, the guilt of all therefore being discharged since penalty cannot be extracted twice. But this is refuted by many Bible statements that the great majority will suffer endlessly for their sins in conscious punishment. Thus this is not a possible escape. We shall continue our discussion in our next visit. Our Heavenly Father, we come to thy word with all humility and pray that many may see the consistency of thy blessed word, may turn from sin through faith in Christ, be reconciled to thee, go on to serve thee happily now and forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.